You guys sound good this morning. Shane, I guess if they don't at the end, it'll be my fault, right? Put them to sleep, mess up what you're doing. All right, if you've got a Bible, let's go back to the book of Jude to finish that up. We're going to look at the, couple, uh, the last couple of verses today. And um, let me set it up this way. If a lot of you know my wife, not everybody does. If you know Robin, you know she's not exactly shy. Uh, you know, opposites attract. She's the extrovert. Uh, I'm more of an introvert, probably become an extroverted introvert out of necessity over the years, but, um, you know, kind of opposites. But, you know, Robin is a great storyteller, and we have a joke, or at least I have a joke, that um, if, if, she, if she has a 30-second conversation with someone and she's telling me about it, it'll take her 30 minutes to tell me about it. If I have a 30-minute conversation with someone, it'll take me 30 seconds uh, to tell her about it. Um, Relate, Shane, yeah. Um, But, you know, when when Robin tells a story, you know, it may start with a particular story, but probably by the time she's finished, there may be half a dozen stories in there. It'll go kind of from here to here, over to here, and then usually it's going to come back around, and she's going to land the plane, and she's going to finish the original story and make the point that she was making. What kind of feels like to me, that's what Jude is doing here at the end of this letter. You know, he, um, he, he said, you know, in verse 3 that he was, uh, he was uh, very diligent to write about our common salvation. But then he, for the, about the next 13 verses after that, goes into all these details and characteristics about these false teachers and then in verses 17 through 23, he uh, explained what we looked at last week about how we grow spiritually, how we build ourselves up spiritually, that kind of thing. Uh, but now it seems like he's coming back to where he started. Because to, to go back to verse 1, it says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Well, that's salvation in a nutshell. There's justification, well, there's calling, then there's justification, there's sanctification, and and there's glorification. We're called, we're sanctified, we're preserved. God saves us, but then he says, you know, be on the lookout. Don't get led astray by false teachers. You got to grow spiritually, got to build yourselves up spiritually. But then at the end, he comes back to salvation. And he says this, starting in verse 24. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, dominion and power, sorry, I skipped something, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Two of my favorite verses in the Bible. Pretty incredible if we can kind of wrap our heads around what he's saying. Let's read those two verses together if we could. Can we give that a try? So let's go back to verse 24. One, two, three. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. 
So the big idea here, I think, what he's saying is, is that we stand in the faith and worship Jesus because he saves us and he keeps us saved. We stand in the faith and worship Jesus because he saves us and keeps us saved. Danny Akins put it this way in his commentary on Jude. He says, by his work on the cross, Jesus obtained my salvation, and by his work in heaven, Jesus maintains my salvation. Listen, salvation is the work of God from beginning to end, if it's real. It's the work of God from beginning to end, if it's real. And and there's really two things uh, that, that I want us to try to accomplish together as we're in this text this morning. You know, want to end with worshiping Jesus in response to what we see here. But beyond that, I, I want all of us to be able to leave here settled in our salvation. Understanding that if we're really saved, we're secure in Christ. And being assured of that, but I, but I want you to understand the difference between security and, and assurance. But we stand in the faith and worship Jesus because he saves us and he keeps us safe. Just to kind of go back to something I shared earlier in the series. I, you know, I shared with you, as, you know, some of the false teaching that I encountered when I was in college and how I struggled uh, with, with my faith and uh, considered kind of just chucking Christianity and you know, how I, I, I studied it and came to the conclusion that it was true. Well, that's part of the story. That's what I used to think. I mean, and, and, and that's, that is a part of it because, uh, you know, there's divine sovereignty. There's human responsibility. Uh, God works through means to obtain his ends, and, and I needed to do that. But, you know, ultimately, the reason that I stand in the faith today is not because I did that. But it's because I belong to Jesus who saved me and keeps me saved. The one who is able to keep me from stumbling and present me faultless before the throne of his glory. It's his work. And you say, why is this so important? Well, if if we don't know whether or not we're saved, how are we ever going to have any spiritual victory? How are we going to have joy if we got to live all the time questioning whether or not I'm really in Christ, whether or not I'm really prepared to die, uh, whether or not I'm ready to go to heaven. Beyond that, I would say people who think that you can lose your salvation don't understand the grace of God. And I question, I mean, I'm not saying everybody who thinks that is not saved, but I do think that is a possibility because if we understand that salvation is completely what Jesus has done for us, there's none of us in it. If he did it, how could we lose it? And so it's important for, uh, obviously for our eternity, but even for the here and now in our own lives, in our own relationship with God, us being settled in this. It's kind of like this. Usually, when I work out, I either go to Manly or the Jefferson City Community Center and, and usually do the elliptical and some weights and that kind of thing. But, but sometimes I'll walk or jog in my neighborhood. Now, if you're walking or jogging in a neighborhood, one of the key things to know is the dog situation. 
right? This is important for your safety and security. And so you kind of got to figure out, you know, who's where, who's fenced in, who's just barking, all these kind of things. Well, uh, there's a dog near the bottom of uh, our neighborhood, the street, the the road that we live on down near uh, the highway that sounds pretty ferocious. But what I figured out pretty soon is there has to be an electric fence in this yard because there's no actual fence, but this dog looks like, it, it seems like it wants to eat you for lunch, but it always comes to a certain spot and stops. And, and, and so, um, you know, this gives a lot of security and confidence and takes away any fear of having a problem with this dog once you know that. Because you know that this dog is bound and it can't go any farther than this particular uh, spot. And so, you know, the dog can like bark at you all day long, but you'd be like, nan nan boo boo you know, too, too bad for you uh, kind of thing. And, and, and the point I'm making, we understand that we're kept in Christ. We are secure in him that Satan can't have us, we can live with that kind of confidence and security and peace. We don't have to live in fear because we belong to Jesus now and forever. That's what Jude is telling us in this text. Now, let's break it down and look at the details of these couple of verses. And let me give us four truths about this. Again, with the idea of it resulting at the end in worship, But along the way, hopefully you being sure of where you stand with Christ. So number one, I want us to see at the beginning of verse 24 that God's salvation of us is permanent and secure in Jesus. Again, he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. In other words, if you're in Christ, he's going to get you from here to the throne of God. He's going to take you there. Basically, what Jude is talking about here is what's called often once saved, always saved. Uh, Some people call it the perseverance of the saints. Some people call it eternal security. It's the idea that if you are genuinely saved, that Jesus keeps you saved. You can't lose your salvation uh, or he won't let you lose your salvation. Again, you know, if it had been up to me to keep my salvation, I would stay saved for about 42 seconds maybe. He keeps us. We don't keep ourselves. This is what this is saying. Now, this, this isn't the only verse that, that, that says this. Let me just kind of quickly run through a sampling of a few others. How, do we, how can we be assured that if we're saved, that we stay saved? Well, Jesus told us many times, including John 524 that he gives us eternal life you can look at these verses on the screen he doesn't give us life until the next time we blow it he gives us eternal forever life Jesus said that we cannot be taken from God John 10 28 I give them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand Uh, salvation is the work of God not our works 
Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, if we're saved by grace, not by works, how are our works going to cause us to lose our salvation? And when he says he's going to complete the good work that he began in us until the day of Jesus Christ, until the return of Christ, until the final judgment, why would we think that we can lose our salvation? Ephesians 4.30 says that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit uh, for the day of redemption. We're sealed. We belong to Him. Of course, the Bible tells us we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Listen, the only way you can lose your salvation is for God to remove His Spirit from you. Right? If you have the Holy Spirit, you're saved. Is that a true statement? If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Is that a true statement? But if you're sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption... Is God ever going to take his spirit from you? No. If, if God doesn't take his spirit from you and you have the Holy Spirit, are you saved? Yes. And so that means that we're saved forever. Romans 8.16 and other verses tell us that we are adopted children of God. And in the Roman culture in which Paul was writing, and I think this is the background of the truth that he's presenting, in Roman culture, a natural born child could be written out of the will, but not an adopted child. If you adopted a child, they were yours forever. And that's a picture here of when God adopts us into his family. Uh, God guarantees that we will be glorified someday. At Romans 8.30, look at it. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. In the Greek, it means it's as good as done. If you're called, if you're justified, you're guaranteed to be glorified. And, and what's, what's it mean to be glorified? It means that he's going to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. You have to be glorified to be able to stand in the glorious presence of God. Romans 8.1 says there's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ. What an amazing promise. If we're in Christ, there's no judgment. Why? Jesus took all of our judgment on the cross. If there's no judgment, how could you ever lose your salvation? You're not condemned. John 6, 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, Jesus speaking, that if all he has given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. Listen, if you're in Christ, he's not going to lose you. I mean... I know sometimes, you know, we as parents, maybe some of us have lost a little kid here and there temporarily. Jesus, that's never going to happen with us. He says he's not going to lose anyone. Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by one offering, he is perfected forever. Those who are being sanctified, we're perfected forever by the blood of Christ. When, when God looks at us, he sees us as clean and pure, and, and we know how impure we are, so that's hard for us to believe, but that's what Scripture says to us. That's the work of Christ in us. That's the gospel. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession 
for them. Saved to the uttermost means that God saves completely and, and, and forever. And listen, Jesus is interceding for you right now. That's why you cannot lose uh, your salvation. Remember, uh, Jesus obtained our salvation through his finished work on the cross. He maintains our salvation through his work in heaven today. Now, listen to this, though. It's a quote by John MacArthur. Because, let's be honest, sometimes we don't always, at least some of us, feel an assurance of our salvation. Sometimes we doubt. And listen, having doubts in and of itself does not mean you're not a Christian. could mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Having doubts sometimes can just be being human. But, but listen to this. John MacArthur says this. Security is the Holy Spirit revealed fact that salvation is forever. That's what we just read. Multiple verses. Assurance is one's confidence that he or she possesses eternal salvation. So security is an objective fact based on the work of Christ. Assurance is more of a subjective feeling based on where we are spiritually at a given moment in time. Does that make sense? So basically when it comes to security and assurance, there's four categories of people. Um, There's people who are secure and they know it, they, they have an assurance of it. There's people who are saved, but they don't have an assurance of it. There's people who know that they're not saved. And there's people who have an assurance of salvation, but it's a false assurance because they're not really saved. So, are you really saved? And do you have an assurance of that salvation? Well, how do you know? Well, I want to share five questions with you that come from Dr. Danny Aiken for you to think about as far as your security and your assurance. And so, you know, for some of you, like, you're saved and you know it. Some of you who aren't, sh- aren't sure. And if you have any smidgen of doubt this morning, I want you to listen to these questions closely and answer them for yourself, okay? So number one, do you believe the gospel and trust Christ? That means, do you believe that you're a sinner, that Jesus is the Son of God who came and died for your sins and rose from the dead, and that salvation is by grace through faith alone? And are you trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation? I mean, are you putting all of your weight on Him, so to speak? You're not... Uh, thinking about anything you've done, you're not thinking about any goodness you have, you know you have nothing to offer, it's all Jesus, and that is what you are trusting in. How would you answer that question? Number two, do you experience remorse over sin and have a desire to please God? In other words, do you feel 
convicted. You feel bad when you sin. And, and not just like you've got a conscience like normal human beings and kind of feel guilty. But, I mean, do you feel guilty before a holy God? Do you feel like you've wronged God? I mean, do you have remorse and, and, and really feel bad and, and, and want to make it right? And it bothers you when you do something wrong. You don't want to do it again. Or you, you know you need sometimes to make things right with other people. But that's a sign of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Listen, if you sin and it doesn't bother you, you're either not saved or you have gotten way away from God and are in danger of some serious consequences. Number three, do you see any evidence of spiritual fruit in your life? Or would others say that there's evidence of spiritual fruit in your life? But have you changed? Are you growing? Do you have a desire for the things of God? Do you want to worship? Do you have a desire for the Word of God? Do you pray? Has your character changed? Are you repenting of sins? Do you think differently? Do you act differently? Do you treat other people differently? Are you serving God? Are, are you generous? Are, are, you, uh, are you sharing your faith with other people? Listen, Jesus said that we're known by our fruits. If there's no fruit, there's no root. Thus, there's no salvation. Four, does the Holy Spirit witness to your spirit that you are a child of God? Do you have a peace that God's your Father, that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, that you know Christ, that you're trusting Him, that uh, you know, God is teaching you, God is guiding you, God is convicting you of sin, God is working in your life? Listen, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, you're going to know He's there. It'd be a little hard for somebody to move into your house and you not know. Number five, when you sin, and if you persist in sin, do you experience the discipline of the Father? Because the Bible says God loves or chastens those that He loves. God disciplines those that He loves. And... I would say, if you can't answer a definitive yes to all five of those, if you're not sure about some of them, or if there's a no to one of them, at a minimum, you ought to at least have a conversation with somebody who can help you, who can take you to God's Word, and you get this nailed down. Listen. I'm going to be honest with you. This is something I've struggled with at points in my life. I made a profession of faith when I was nine, and I believe that I got saved then, although it is possible that it happened a few years later when I was in middle school. I think it happened when I was nine. But part of the problem with the situation and part of what kind of confused me uh, for a while was I went forward at a revival service in my home church. Um, this was before Rusty's dad was my pastor. He would have not handled it this way. But uh, for whatever reason... The pastor, instead of taking the Bible and showing me from Scripture how to be saved, he just hugged me. That's all he did. And uh, I talked to my mom uh, later that night. And like I said, I think I got saved that night. But I think the way he handled it and the nature of the experience confused me somewhat. And so, uh, you know, especially as a teenager at times, I you know, doubted it. And of course, you know, when you're a teenager and just trying to figure things out, I mean, you know, you doubt stuff, question stuff, whatever anyway. But, but there's... At some point when I was a teenager, I just came to this conviction. The Bible says, if, uh, you know, Romans 10, 9, if you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, 
and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I just came to the point where I've done that. If it's true, I'm saved. And if it's not true, well, I'm, you know, I don't know. I'm in trouble anyway. And I don't know what, I don't know what else to do. Now, as an adult, I would look at it even as a little different way than that. Uh, the way I would look at it now, see, I think a lot of times where we get messed up is we focus on our end of the deal. And if we responded in exactly the right way and said all the right words and jumped through all the hoops, and that's not how it works, really. Jesus saves us. And is that where your confidence is? And completely in the finished work of Christ. That's what it boils down to. Not if you had the right formula or anything else like that. Is, is your confidence in, completely in, the finished work of Christ? You know, somebody said, why should God let you into heaven? Jesus saved me. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose from the dead. God called me. Uh, you know, God regenerated my heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm saved. There, there's none of me in it. It's all of him. That's how you know you're saved. Are you trusting fully, completely in what he has done for you because his finished work is sufficient? Jesus saves us. He keeps us saved. Look at the next phrase in this verse because really, you know, it's amazing that, that, as that, that is that he's able to keep us from stumbling. The next phrase says, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. I think that's even more amazing because it, here, here's the truth, that God's salvation of us so thoroughly cleanses and changes us that we are able to be in his glorious presence. Now, we need to go, we need to do just a couple minutes of background work, I think, to fully appreciate what Jude is saying here. Let's go back to the Old Testament for just a second. Remember in Exodus 33, where Moses asked to see God's glory? And God's response, part of it, I, you know, I'm not going to get into all of it for time's sake, but he said in verse 20, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Now, think about it. We may, think, we may be like, man, you know, I'm not Moses. Moses is, you know, spiritual giant, spiritual hero, all these kind of things. But God said to Moses, no man shall see my face and live. But Jude says to us that spotless before the throne of his glory. You go later, last chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus 40, 34, and 35, it says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So Moses couldn't walk in to the tabernacle because of the glory of God. He couldn't stand in the presence of the glory of God. But yet, Revelation 21, 22, and 23 tells us, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. So Moses couldn't 
enter into the presence of the glory of God. But the Bible says we're going to be in the presence of the glory of God forever. How is that possible? Colossians 1, starting in verse 19, says, For it pleased the Father that in Him, that in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily is how he explains it in the next chapter. And by Him, to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. By the cross, we're reconciled to God. But it says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He is reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you, listen to this, holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. Why couldn't Moses enter into the presence of the glory of God? And why can we? Because through the cross of Jesus Christ, he has made us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He has saved us and he's able to keep us from stumbling. And he so cleanses us and changes us and transforms us and ultimately glorifies us that we can come into the presence of God. And and, and listen. We see ourselves as unholy and and, and guilty, and there's things from our past that that bother us, and there's ways we condemn ourselves, and there's ways that other people judge us, and there's all kinds of things that we can be blamed for. But in Christ, through the cross, in the sight of God, we are holy and blameless and above reproach, and that's why we can stand in His presence. That is the gospel It's not what we've done, it's what Jesus has done for us. I I read something uh, this past week that a a pastor said, he talked about preaching to church in Detroit one time, and um, they had this mural on the wall and it had this sentence painted on it, all the charges dropped against me, all the charges against me have been dropped. And when I first read it, I'm like, that's a weird thing to have in a church, that's like, you know, courtroom, jail, something. But then it hit me, no, that's the gospel. I'm justified. All the charges against me have been dropped. But I want you to see that's true, but it goes even farther because it's not just we've been forgiven. We've been transformed. We've been cleansed, purified, glorified, and that's why We're capable of being in the presence of God, a holy, glorious God, forever in heaven where everything's perfect and we won't mess it up. Number three, the the last little phrase of verse 24, God's salvation of us results in eternal joy. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless, before the presence of his glory with great joy. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, It would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too far easily Please. You see, I think a lot of times people are like, you know, when we talk about living for the glory of God or living for Jesus, like, no, I want to be happy. 
and if I do that, I'm not going to be happy. But see, the Bible always connects the glory of God and the joy of his people. See, Satan wants to lie to us and, and tell us, you know, he's got happiness for us. God says, in me, in my glory, there's infinite and eternal joy. See, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but it steals, kills, and destroys. God wants to give us the real thing now and forever. But you think about joy in heaven. Luke 15, 10, Jesus said, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So in heaven, the angels are rejoicing. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In, in heaven, Jesus has joy because we're there, <coughs> because he redeemed us. The Psalm 16, 11 says, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, heaven won't be boring. Listen, you're not going to be an angel in heaven floating around on a cloud, plucking a harp. Angels are distinct from human beings. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that angels don't even get what we're talking about today. See, they know God as creator. They know God as sovereign ruler. They don't know him as savior. Jesus didn't die for angels. He died for us. We worship him in a, in a different way. And I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but it's going to be, God says, pleasure, joy. I mean, we're going to serve him, know him, enjoy him, enjoy each other forever. I mean, think about it. I mean, we, we get so caught up in this world, and I do too, but, uh, you know, we have such a love-hate relationship with this world, don't we? But the things we hate are going to be no more. He's going to set everything right. There's nothing bad ever again, which our minds can't even comprehend. It's joy forever. Why? Because Jesus saves us. He keeps us saved. He cleanses us. He transforms us. And then our response to this is worship. Verse 25, God's salvation of us makes us worshipers of Jesus. Look at what he says here. Through God our Savior. And then he uses six phrases that we can use in our worship to God. Six ways he describes God. Number one, he alone is wise. He's glorious. And, and, and the glory of God is the outward shining manifestation of all of his inward perfections. He's majestic. He's the king. And he's glorious and wonderful and beautiful and exalted. He has dominion, which means he's sovereign and rules over all. He has power, which means he's completely in authority. And it says both now and forever, he's eternal. All of this always has belonged to him and always will belong to him. And here's the reality. If we're really saved, 
we're a worshiper. You see, um, you know, we, we use the word Christian a lot. The New Testament only uses the word Christian like three times. The most common to, word to describe a, a follower of Jesus is disciple. But when you read the New Testament, Christian, disciple, born again, whatever you want to is synonymous with worshiper. Here's, here's one example of that. John chapter 9, Jesus uh, did a miracle, healed a man who was born blind from birth. The Pharisees, as they often did, got ticked off, kicked him out of the synagogue. And um, it's kind of picking up the story there with that quick intro, verse 35. Jesus, it says, Jesus heard that they cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? And this man answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. We can't really believe in Jesus without worshipping him. I mean, if we really believe that he's the Lord of lords and King of kings, that he's God incarnate, if we really believe that the perfect holy God came to earth and sacrificed himself for us, rose from the dead, he rules and he reigns, he's forgiven us, he's done all these things for us, how can we not worship him? Worship is the mark of a genuine believer. Listen, if, if, if coming to church is not enjoyable to you now, you'd be pretty miserable in heaven Philippians 3.3, 3. I mean, I think it's a great description of salvation in a verse. It says, for we are the circumcision, and Paul's kind of using a play on words there because the, the Judaizers in Galatia thought you were saved by circumcision. You know, he's saying we're the real circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. That's a Christian. You worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. That means have no confidence in the flesh. That means we know that we are sinners, and there's nothing we can do to earn or contribute to our salvation. So we rejoice in Jesus Christ. Uh, Galatians 6.14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's a crazy verse. I mean, we're, we're so used to hearing about the cross that we... We don't get the emotional impact of it. We sanitize it. But to say I boast in the cross is nuts. That'd be like saying I boast in an electric chair or lethal injection. Except worse, because the cross was a torturous death. And to boast in means to brag about, to exult in. It's words of worship, but it's also words of identity. He's talking about finding your identity in the cross. Why would you find your identity? Why would you brag about? Why would you worship someone who was tortured to death? I mean, that, that sounds crazy. And, and that's a humbling thing because if we do that, if we boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, if we have no confidence in the flesh and we rejoice in Jesus, essentially what we are saying is, I am so messed up that it took the Son of God dying for me to make me right with God, that there is no way that I deserve a relationship with God. There is no way that I can get to heaven on my own. Thank you, Jesus. And the only way that that would make any sense to do is if he actually rose from the dead. So again, 
Do you believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead? And is all your confidence in that? And are you living like that's where your confidence is? And are you worshiping him like that's where your confidence is? That's how you can know if you're saved. So again, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? If you're not sure, settle it this morning. I'll give you the opportunity to do that in just a moment. And after we do that, after we pray, the band's going to come back again. We're going to sing and take communion as you're ready, just kind of between you and the Lord as an act of worship to Him. But listen, if we believe this, let's express our worship to Him. Let's act like that we are so messed up that our only hope is the grace and mercy of God through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's love Him and thank Him and praise Him and worship Him and rejoice in Him because of who He is and what He's done for us. Of course, part of our worship is repenting of sin. Maybe that's what you need to do before you can really worship and take communion today. Because, I mean, if we're saved, we're saved. But it's like Jesus told Peter, you know, uh, I've already washed you, but you need to wash your feet. We need to be cleansed of the daily stain of sin, not for our relationship with God, but for our fellowship with God, so we can be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and really walk with the Lord. So maybe that's your response today. Maybe some of you need to make a commitment today uh, it's kind of like Steve Payson said, you can't take the second step till you take the first step. Uh, maybe some of you need to get baptized today. And we have no plans for this. I'm just saying this completely off the cuff. Uh, but we have water in the baptistry. It's heated. We're baptizing the second service. You need to get baptized. You publicly confess your faith in Jesus. We'll make it happen at the end of this service or do it when we do the baptism in the next service or something. Don't be ashamed of him. If he's done all of this for you, why would you be afraid or ashamed to go public and say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I am following Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.